Now, just a little, um, it's been an amazing week, hasn't it? I don't know if any of you got um, very absorbed in Thursday night and Friday. Now, I I don't like politics, and I'm not particularly politically minded, but I have to say, we were spellbound in our house, and we had the television on all day Friday. And the thing that struck me was, all of a sudden, all the hype that's been around for the last few weeks just fell away. And suddenly, we saw genuine emotion of a variety of sorts. There was genuine elation in Scotland. There was genuine devastation and remorse from Nick Clegg, who looked like a broken man. There was a kind of a genuine, oops, I got it wrong, sorry, bye-bye, it's up to you now, from Ed Miliband. (laughs) There was a kind of a stunned... I think I should be celebrating, but blimey, I didn't expect it to be like this from David Cameron. And it was a joy. And I'm sure that by about now, they're all regrouping and the hype will come back. But it was good to see something genuine breaking out. So I'm hoping this morning that something genuine breaks out. Okay, that's what I'm aiming for. Now, another thing, just a warning, if you ever get asked to speak, before you say yes, read the passage. Because <laughs> I said, oh yeah, that'd be lovely. I'd love to come back to Oxford. And, and I have to confess that I left it for about a week or more. And then I read the passage and I went, Keith, that's my husband. Have you seen, have you seen this? Have you seen? And I've been regretting it ever since. Because The thing about when you prepare a talk is that God speaks to you. And just in case you thought, I got it all sorted, I haven't. And I found this immensely challenging, and I'm still finding it immensely challenging. Now, as Al said, the study in Luke's been going on for a long while. You didn't have it last week because last week was Love Oxford. The week before, Steve spoke on a passage about the narrow door. And we're actually going to skip a little bit uh, this week because it, it kind of reiterates very much what Steve was speaking on. And we're going to go to uh, Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. And as I read this, it is, I have to confess for me, one of the scriptures that I like to read and put over there and say, I'll come back and have a look at it another day when it feels more comfortable. But it never does. So I don't go back to it that often. But we're going to try and face it head on, head on today, okay? Okay. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, 
desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or the manure heap. It's thrown away. He who has ears... Let him hear. Wow. Now, the previous chapter has been set in uh, the home of an individual, Jesus, round the meal table in an intimate, more intimate setting, albeit not always with friends, people who were challenging him. Here we're out in the open air with large crowds, the crowds that Graham was referring to this morning. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows why he's going to Jerusalem, and he tries to communicate that to his disciples with not much success. They're not listening. We're told earlier on in Luke that word got out about what Jesus was doing, and all around the region... People came. They came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and from the coastal towns of Tyre and Sidon. And he was something of a superstar. There was no reluctance to come to him. People had heard about him, but they didn't know him. And it's into this atmosphere of a victory parade. We don't know what they expected. Did they expect that this was the moment when Galilee was going to Jerusalem, when Scotland was going to roar over England? Did they expect that the peasant was finally going to take on the powerful? Did they think the Jews were finally going to get their own against the Romans? They certainly didn't expect to be part of a funeral procession. And Jesus cuts right across this atmosphere. It would have been so easy for him to just go with the flow, like our politicians do. But no, he cut right across this atmosphere. He wants to teach them the difference between coming to and following, coming to and coming after. He wants to teach the difference between being a follower and being a disciple. I read a quote this week. Um, Two university professors were speaking, and one said to the other, Ah, I hear John's a student of yours. And the other one peered over his specs and said, He's attended my lectures, but he's no student of mine. (laughs) There's a difference. And Jesus outlines to the crowd what being a disciple is going to look like. 
And this is the cost of discipleship. He calls them to hate, well, he calls us, to hate those we love, to bear our own cross, to come after Jesus and to count the cost. And I'm going to try and look at each of these four. Now there's overlap and there's flow and hopefully the sense of flow and the sense of overlap will come across. Let's look first to what it means to hate those we love. That's a very startling thing that Jesus says. And it it makes us do this. But we need to understand when we look at the whole of Scripture, we're called. Jesus and the whole of Scripture's teaching is very clear about how God expects us to treat our families, uh, our partners, our children, our parents. It's with love, it's with respect, it's with honoring, it's not with hatred. We look at Jesus' life. He modeled caring for his mother. Whilst he was on the cross, he made provision for her welfare. So it clearly doesn't mean hate in that sense. And the meaning of the word here is, as I've said there, it's to turn away from, to detach, to not call to ourselves. And the understanding the crowd would have had was that Jesus was saying, you have got to love these things, even your own self, less than you love me. It's this sense of holding all our relationships, even our relationship with our own sweet self, on an open hand before God. Our relationship with Jesus is to define all our other relationships, not the other way around. It's to be the lens through which we look at our relationships. It's the lens through which we view others. It's the lens through which we view ourselves. We don't expect Jesus to fit in. We expect to fit in with him. Now, this when we see it, adds amazing value to our relationships. It doesn't devalue them. It makes them more valuable. We see other people and we see ourselves the way Jesus sees things. Whilst acknowledging that he is the one with ownership. He is the one who calls the shots, not us. What does it look like in practice? Now, I'm going to be embarrassing several people this morning. I hope that's okay, because I'm not here next. Oh, I am here next week. Oh, shucks. Ben and Michelle work in a country overseas, which isn't safe and cozy. And they have three soon-to-be-four small children, and they take them with them. They would be very well understood if they said, our children are too precious. We cannot take our children into the place where there aren't good schools and there aren't nice chances to hang out with their friends and there aren't, they can't go to drama and swimming and all the other nice things we like to do. We have a couple, another couple, young couple working overseas who are about to have their first baby. I think Steve Thomas, when he spoke, spoke at length about them. My own daughter, darn it, we brought her up to have missions in her heart. What did she do? She turned around and took us seriously. 
and took God seriously. She's in France with my three soon-to-be-four grandchildren. I don't want them to be there. I want them to be across the road, around the corner, like they used to be. But all of these people are not counting their relationship to their children as the thing which stops them doing what God's called them to do. Um, my uh, son-in-law up in Manchester works for a, project called, uh, a group called the Message Trust. Some of you may have heard of Eden Projects, where families move into very, very disadvantaged areas, live there, put down roots, incarnate the gospel. Uh, it's tough bringing up their families in places like that. But these people are superheroes, aren't they? They're not normal. I live in Botley. What does it look like in Botley? For me, uh, it looks like fighting all the time against self-protection and fear. I've had a lot about fear this morning. And you know, I've, I've come to realize that um, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. I could, I could quite justifiably slowly start to just draw back, relax, garden, <laughs> go out for tea with Liz. And I would like, there's something self-protective that I don't like that's growing in me. And self-protecting my relationships. I could spend all my time on the people I like. We could do anything for a quiet life with our kids. Well, let's keep the children happy. Let's keep the teenagers happy. Let's not challenge them about going to church. Let's not tell them they can't watch that. I know the internet is going off, Joe, isn't it, at a certain time every night? No, let's fit our relationships. Let's look through the lens of Jesus. We can be so afraid of our family and friends that we, don't, we won't do what's right. Where's the lovely girl who got baptized this morning? Where is she? She's gone. She's in kids' work, God bless her. You know. I know people who've had many a battle with their family and friends who thought that baptism was just a step too far. Thank you very much. We can let that stop us doing what Jesus... Now, it will be different things for all of us. It will be different things for you. But let's not, just, let's not think it's just the superheroes that have to answer this question. We all have to answer it. What does it look like to bear our own cross? This is an incredibly powerful phrase, isn't it? To bear our own cross. Now, people talk about having their cross to bear. Where I grew up, lots of fairly elderly ladies just talk, it's my cross to bear. We can often mean it's a pile of things dumped on us over which we have no control and about which we want to grumble. That is not what this means. The cross is an instrument of death that Jesus chose to pick up and carry as a supreme act of love for us. It was not done to him. He was not passive. He was active. He carried the cross actively. And he calls us to make a love response. He loved us. And our love response to him is to pick up our cross and carry it. Now, I am somebody who is deeply committed to my own comfort. Deeply. And I don't like this at all. It is not a comfortable image. 
to have to ask myself, what in my life has to die? Sorry, went too far. (laughs) What does our cross look like? What for you does your cross look like? It's going to be different things for all of us. It is what we need to put to death so that nothing stands between us and doing and being what God's calling us to do and be. I'm not going to attempt to answer your question, but how can we even start to answer that question? We can start to answer it by asking it. That's a good place to start. Lord, What would you like to die in my life? I guarantee if you ask God that today, he'll give you something tomorrow, if not before you go to bed. We need to have spiritual disciplines in our lives. And we did a whole section on spiritual disciplines, reading the word of God, praying, fasting if necessary. Well, yeah, fasting is necessary. You can see how I feel about it, can't you? Um, (laughs) We need those things because the closer we get to God, the more we'll hear his voice telling us what needs to die. And the more his love. You see, if we want these things to go, they will go as the love of God grows in us. And as we comprehend the love of God, our love response will be to pick up our cross in that way Jesus did. We've got to be open and honest in community. I've been in quite a lot of meetings over the last few months. Not, not here. With people who f- are very frightened about other people seeing the chinks in their armor. Openness and honesty with others saying, you know what? I really struggle with this. Um, And letting people get around us and help us. And accountability. You know, if I go to somebody and I say, I am really battling with fear in my life. And I want you to keep asking me. We meet with um, Stuart and Carol Larkin, Stuart and Lynn Waddington quite regularly. And we've got some really good accountability going down, I, I think, haven't we? Where we've actually all said, look, you know, I really struggle with this. And other people are asking us, how's it going? And praying for us. We're praying for each other. And all of those things will help us pick up our cross and carry it. And it's a daily thing. Did you see that? You don't pick it up for once, take it a few yards, put it down, and then carry on without it. Every day is a choice to pick it up. There's a little guy. Does he show up? There is a little guy there struggling across with his cross. Okay. I've found, we've had Cass Jones. Some of you may know Cass Jones. She's, she's just gone back to Mozambique. She's working out there with Heidi Baker and Iris Ministries. Now, she's been living with us for five months. And I found it quite difficult. Not because of anything Cass done. She's fantastic. But because her life is actually quite a challenge. And it makes me a bit uncomfortable, to be honest, living with her every day because of her passionate relationship with Jesus. I feel a bit, oh, calm down, Cass. <laughs> I've also been reading this book by Shane Claiborne called The Irresistible Revolution. 
It's killing <laughs> Exactly. It is killing me. I'm trying to resist the temptation to hurl it at the wall on a regular basis. Um, sorry. And I don't like it because it's extreme. It's radical. He's taken Jesus at his word and he's living out biblical Christianity. And it, Botley versus biblical Christianity at the minute is looking like quite a big divide. Uh, just keep asking me. I haven't finished it yet. So ask God, what's your cross? What's your cross? And let him give you the answers and then let other people help you carry it. Jesus said, if you're my disciples, you won't just come to me. You see, the crowds have come to him. He doesn't want people who just come to him. He wants people who will come after him with a passion. Who will pursue him. Who will pursue life with him. We like to be pursued. Ben and Catherine are getting married in the summer. There was a bit of pursuing going on, I hope. You got there. Well done. It's good. You pursued because you loved. And when you were... God pursues us. And he wants us to pursue him in response. Now, this was a, a classic call of a rabbi. Rabbis would go around and if they spotted a student they fancied, they'd go, follow me. And the rabbi would have his little group of people who followed him and who listened to his teachings. This is way beyond the normal call of a rabbi. This is radical. The crowds would have understood Jesus having his little groups of students. But he's saying something so radical. He's saying it's more than just listening to the stuff I say this. I think it would have also been understood that it's a call to community. That this pursuing, this coming after Jesus is a call to active pursuit in community. A call to learning and to being together. Not just me and Jesus. Not just me and Jesus and the people I like. For me, it's a call to church family. To pursue Jesus in the context of a church family. I am passionately committed to church family. Find it, join it, commit to it, run with it. When um, we used to live in London, uh, after Chris after graduated from Oxford, we went back to London and we lived there for a while. And we were dissatisfied with the level of our, our life in God. And we had a, a friend at the time who lived in a, a small Oxfordshire village. He was, his name was Steve Thomas. And we used to come and visit. And we watched this tiny little Oxford ch- church in this tiny little village. We watched the life of God grow and grow and grow and grow. And we got hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And in the end, we thought we're moving. And uh, Keith just put out applications for any old teaching job he could get. Now, he was, he was a bit of a whiz kid in 
in the London area. He worked in what was known as the Inner London Education Authority at the time, Ilya. And he was being headhunted for jobs here and there. And he was a bit of a bright-eyed boy. He had lots of hair. Um, <laughs> sorry, if you don't know him, he da- now doesn't have lots of hair. <laughs> um, but he said, I'll take anything. And he took a math job in a local school. Science was his love. Maths he could teach. He took a maths job in a not very good, but okay sort of a school. He he would have taken anything, to be honest. Because we'd seen the family that we wanted to join and to pursue God with. Yeah? Yeah? Find it. I also think there's another aspect to this. If we look in Mark's gospel... In, um, I think I have it. If we look in Mark 8, 34 to 37, Jesus, it's the same scenario. It's probably the same event. Calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think this call to come after Jesus is a call to speak out for Jesus. Um, to not be ashamed of the gospel. The active pursuit of Jesus individually and in community isn't just about church on Sunday. It's about people with a mission to take good news to others. Oh, might that be something called missional community, do we think? That's why our communities of people in church are called missional communities. Because we want to grow passionate communities of people who are actively pursuing Jesus together. So if you're not part of one, could I respectfully suggest that you might like to join one? Find one? Pioneer one? Talk to Steve about one? Do something about one? Because I think it's part of our passionate following after Jesus together. Now, our missional communities aren't there yet. They're not fully formed. But they are on their way. And, yeah, they're worth it. We haven't seen the fruit we want to see yet, but we will do. One day we will do. So part then for me, our pursuit of Jesus is not simply for our own sakes. Our pursuit of Jesus is also for the sake of the world and for the lost. Now Jesus said it was going to cost us. Count the cost, don't cut the cost. There's a little man there with his scissors. He's trying, isn't he? We like We like bargains, don't we? The thing about the gospel, you know, is that salvation's free. And discipleship costs everything. 
And there are a lot of people in the world who, who stop at salvation. And do you know what? I quite like to stop at salvation, if I'm honest. Because salvation is free. Jesus did it all. And that's wonderful. But I don't think any of the teaching in this book says we can stop at salvation. We have to go on to discipleship. And that does. There's no cost cutting in discipleship. Well, there is, but we'll talk about that later. Now, when Jesus spoke to this crowd, he knew what it was going to cost him. He was on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross. He also knew, because he told many of them, what it was going to cost his disciples. He talked to Peter about the fact that when he was old, other people would bind him and take him where he didn't want to go. And many of those early disciples, if not all of them, Steve will put me right if I'm wrong, actually were martyred for their faith. Pretty much, Lee, weren't they? Almost all. Check out with Steve if you want details. Now, the, the, the thing is that throughout most of human history, that has still been the case. If you do any church history, throughout most of human history, people have been martyred for their faith. It's been a dangerous thing following Jesus. In large portions of the world now, it is still a life-threatening scenario to follow Jesus. There's just a small portion of the world in a small portion of history for whom it doesn't mean that, and we happen to be in it. For most of us, it is not going to mean laying down our lives as far as we know at the moment. Some of you may remember this um, scenario in April when Islamic militants um, broke into a university in Kenya, a secondary school in Kenya. They went from dormitory to dormitory. They woke up the students. They held a gun to their head and they said, are you Muslim or Christian? And if they answered Christian, they shot them. Now, I don't know what I would say if somebody had a gun to my head and they said, are you Muslim or Christian? Everything in me at the moment says I would say I'm Christian because I couldn't say anything else. I'm a Christ follower. We don't have to answer that big question, I don't think, because I think when the time comes there would be the answer to that question. We've got people in our church family who might have to face that one day. They're those superstars again. But what about us? What about Oxford, May 2015? The question I've found myself asking over the weeks as I've been looking at this, where in my life is my relationship with Jesus costing me anything? Because Jesus said, count the cost. So he, was in, he wasn't saying, if there's a cost, have a look at it, if you fancy. He said, count the cost. I, ju- I just made a quick list, which I'd kind of like to unpick a bit. 
of what we might like to think of as places where we counted the cost. I had independence, self-will, selfishness, ambition, jobs, friends, houses, time, money, politics, shopping, the poor, justice, leisure, relationships, sex, social media, and all the other ones. Independence, self-will, selfishness. You remember when Jesus said, you've even got to hate yourself. You've got to look at yourself through my lens, which is infinitely precious with things that really have got to go. You know, independence was what got the human race into the mess it's in now. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to be like God all by ourselves and go and do what we've been told not to. Selfishness, self-will. Do they need to die? What about jobs and ambition? Again, embarrassing people. Uh, I was in Bista the other Sunday and uh, somebody was preaching and they said, if you look around the people who lead the congregations in Oxfordshire Community Church, he said, you will find some extraordinarily talented people who could be earning a lot of money right now if they were doing something different. If the Labour Party had had Andy O'Connell, they'd be in government now. I, I, I vouch that he could even resurrect the Lib Dems. <laughs> Steve jay has got a mind the size of a small continent. Anybody in academia would bite his hand off to have him there. Ben's an engineer. Steve's a fantastic educationalist. He does not earn at the King's School what he would earn if he was heading up a state primary school of the if he of the he has the quality to do that sorry stutter stutter and I could go around the room I'm not trying to embarrass people but they laid down their ambition they laid down job security because they were following after they were being disciples of What about friends? Who do we need to hang around with who does us good? And even more, who do we need to hang around with so that we can do them good? Not our favorite friends, but the ones that we know are people of peace. We can do them good with the good news of the gospel. I've always wanted a lovely big home with lots of spare rooms and a great big dining room. And I know that if I lived in other parts of the country, I could actually afford it, but God's always called me to Oxford. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) So I live in a little Lego box, and we squish everybody in and do the best we can. I, I could actually just move to another part of the country to get somewhere bigger, but I've been called to follow Jesus in this community, so I can't. I'm constrained. What about time and money? It's really not our own, you know. My husband is marvelous in many respects and irritating in many others. And one of the ways in which he's irritating is that he's constantly keeping a look on our money, not in a mingy kind of way, but to make, he has this rule that 
because we're at the stage in life where we've got a bit of spare cash, which we never really had before, but the kids have gone and the grand, you know. So we can kind of do nice things, but his rule is you, when we always check that we are not spending more on our own enjoyment than we are giving away. That's his, his constant thing. We're not going to do that because we've just done this and we need to up the giving. Because it's not our money. There's just that knotty subject of tithing, isn't there? You know, tithing, 10%, the first 10% before anything else goes into the storehouse. The storehouse was where people received spiritual nourishment from. That community, that active journey in community is where we put 10% of our money before we start giving, that's tithing, then there's giving. So I don't wish to offend anybody, but I am going to say this, and Steve can tell me off afterwards. If your bum's on your seat and you don't ever put your hand in your pocket, maybe you just need to ask some questions about money. It's not yours. Politics, well, that's a bit, you know, but do we vote? Why do we vote for who we vote, vote for? Do we look at the candidates? I know it's, 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 it's old hat for a bit now, isn't it? But we need to look at the men and women. Find the men and women of integrity. Blow the party. Find the men and women of integrity who will sit in our government, whatever they represent. Shopping. Who made the clothes we wear? Who paying suppliers? This is my pet thing. I'm not going to get stuck on it. The poor and justice. Stuart and Lynn sat there. I know a little bit of how much of their time and their finances they put in at personal cost to do things like edge and equip, to take justice to the poor and the marginalised. And I commend them for it. Relationships and sex. People who decide that they are going to take seriously the Bible when it says, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. And they're going to either wait for a God-fearing man and woman or go without and if they go without, they're going to go without and be celibate. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And I could go on, couldn't I? All of these places where we are counting the cost and taking seriously what it means to follow after Jesus. Now, this word to renounce, Jesus said, if you remember that passage, he says, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciples. To renounce means this. It's a present tense verb. It means to continually be ready to give up anything and everything to follow Jesus. It's a daily readiness. 
Following Jesus makes our lives considerably less tidy. You know, we hear all the wonderful testimonies about life used to be awful and then I found Jesus and now it's wonderful. Well, it goes along the lines of life was terrible, I found Jesus. It is immeasurably wonderful and it's completely wrecked my life. Because all the things that are nice and tidy and in place suddenly have to get thrown up the air and looked at again. That's old Shane Claiborne for you. Now there's this bit on the end. What's the alternative to discipleship? The alternative to discipleship is mixture. Now when they, when they made salt at this time, uh, what happened was they took water from the Dead Sea and they evaporated it and they allowed crystals to form. And if you do that well, you can actually get crystals of pure salt sodium chloride salt, which tastes good and can be used as a preservative uh, and is is great. If you do it badly, you get a mixture of of two different chemicals and it tastes bitter and revolting and can just just has to be chucked out. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. Mixed discipleship doesn't taste so great when you when you encounter it. In fact, it's a bit useless. So we need to work at some pure discipleship. Okay, now you're all really depressed and thinking, I'm going to, you know, cry into my hanky all the way home. How on earth do we do this? Oh, it's not a martyr complex. It's not about woe is me. It's not about, I'm going to really try harder. Because that won't get us anywhere. What do we do? Let's think about Peter. Remember Peter, the disciple? I'll do anything for you, Lord. Oh, I think I'm going to run away and hide and go back to fishing. And then he met the risen Jesus. Now, he'd hung around Jesus. He'd listened. He'd been there. But when he met the risen Jesus and the risen Lord Jesus took him back and said, do you love me, Peter? Three times and gave Peter the chance to say yes. When he met God's love and forgiveness, when he at Pentecost in that room was filled with the Holy Spirit, he changed like that and he went out. And he proclaimed the gospel in the street. And he didn't stop proclaiming the gospel from that minute onwards till they crucified him upside down. He had discovered discipleship and he discovered how we managed to do it. And how we managed to do it is those things. So if you haven't encountered the risen Lord Jesus, if you've just heard about him, like the crowds, and you've come along, but you haven't met him, then talk to somebody before you go home. Anybody around the front here. If you haven't experienced God's love and forgiveness over some particular issues from the past that are still there, then do business over it. And if not being filled with the Holy Spirit, and if we're not all being filled on a daily basis with the Holy Spirit, If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, come and talk about it. If you have been, when was the last time? 
Because it needs to be this morning and tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning. And then we stand a chance of being disciples, not followers. There's a man called Jim Elliott who uh, was martyred. He went to South American tribe and they, with some other young men and they killed them. And this was what he wrote in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I've asked myself the question over the last few weeks, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And I've come up with the answer that there is nothing else that is worth doing all this stuff for. There is nothing else that it's worth picking something up and doing a daily dying for. That there is nothing else like being a follower and a disciple. A radical follower and a radical disciple of Jesus.